are listening to Episode 8 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Shadowlass and Dollman. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me for the first story in this issue is Kyle Benning from the podcast King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. What's up, Kyle? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to have you, man. I'm a big fan. And as I always do when I'm starting off a new episode, just to get potential new listeners acquainted with the series, if you didn't already know, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling or perhaps retelling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Nine of which, if I can count, focus on the Legion of Superheroes. And as badly as Rob Kelly begged me to let him cover each and every one, I said, no, Rob, you have to share your love of the Legion with others. And that's why Kyle is here, to help me talk about the origin of Shadow Lass, one of the bluest-skinned members of the Legion of Superheroes. Kyle, when and how did you become a fan of the Legion? I, I want to say that uh, the first Legion issue I ever read was Adventure Comics 442, I believe. And that I would have picked up at a garage sale, probably got around age 8, 10 or so. And they have a huge cast of characters, so you know the, there's a lot of lot to latch on there. Uh, being a huge Superman fan and Superboy fan, I naturally just kind of gravitated towards uh, the character of Monel. Okay. And I didn't have any comic book shops in my town growing up, so once comics disappeared off the newsstand, mid '90s, uh, up to that point, if I was buying new comics, I'd get them at my uh, local grocery store, High V. And uh, so once those disappeared there, it was kind of garage sailing only when I could pick comics up. And I guess when I really started to get back into them big would have been around the time of the, the Mark Wade series there in the early 2000s that eventually became Supergirl and the, the Legion of Superheroes. And then that went just back to Legion of Superheroes with issue number 37. They brought in uh, Jim Shooter and I believe Francis Manipal, guy that's worked a lot on the New 52 Flash, was the artist on that. And they... Uh, kind of took it back to the more classic era of the Legion, and that's really kind of where I fell in love with it. And so a lot of my initial Legion love has been some of the stuff just from the last decade or 
10 to 15 years. And since then, I've kind of been going back and diving more into the, the Silver and Bronze Age era of the Legion as well and really enjoying that. My first real exposure to the Legion was through the same series. It was the Mark Wade series um, that he was doing with Barry Kitson for a long time. And because of the way I got into DC Comics, it, w- it was very slow and it, was, it really kind of started in the mid-2000s. I, I gravitated toward the more iconic, well-known characters that I remembered from the Superpowers cartoons and from merchandising and toys, so I knew the big Justice League characters most. And I always heard of that people loved the Legion of Superheroes. I always heard about their popularity. But knowing that their stories were set in the far future, I, I felt a disconnect from them. I, I just felt like that was they were somehow less relevant, or at least that's what I thought. But when I decided to check out the Mark Wade series, I did that basically on the strength of his name and his writing, and I absolutely loved that series. I loved what he was doing with the characters and his interpretation of that world. I really liked when they brought Supergirl. I loved the energy uh, and the dynamic that she she brought to that group. And and I think the Legion needs a Superman type of character to go with it, whether it's Superman or Supergirl or, like you said, Monel, somebody... Uh, a, a surrogate can work, but I think I think the, the Legion works better when it has something like that, like a Superboy. Oh, I totally agree. It's I mean, yeah. it originally spun out of a Superboy story in Adventure number two forty seven, so it definitely goes hand in hand with the Legion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but besides that story and like more recent appearances during the Jeff Johns run of Action Comics, and a few of the more modern Paul Levitt's written issues. I don't have a whole lot of uh, experience with the Legion, so I'm going to be learning quite a bit as I'm going through this Secret Origins podcast. But just to kind of go over the publication history in a very abbreviated fashion, um, because this issue really just focuses on one character, and there will be other issues that focus on more characters, and an issue that focuses specifically on the team and the concept, We'll come to that a little bit later. So the general gist of the Legion of Superheroes, as Kyle said, they originated in the pages of Adventure Comics issue 247, which was published back in 1958. And fundamentally, the Legion is a group of superpowered teenagers from the 30th century, later the 31st century of the DC Universe. And taking their inspiration from the adventures of Superman, the Legion brings together youths from dozens of different homeworlds to protect not just Earth, but the entire universe. And among the Legion's vast amount of heroes is Shadow Lass. She was created in 1968 by Jim Shooter and Kurt Swan in Adventure Comics 365. And according to the internet, which is never wrong, she was the eighth female to join the Legion and the 24th member overall. And that's about all I got. (laughs) Um, So hopefully Kyle can give me a little bit more of an education on who Shadow Lass is and what she's about. Yeah, this series is kind of a bit of an anomaly because it takes place kind of in the middle between a kind of a big split in Legion publishing history and tone and direction. And so right around this time, post-crisis, Paul Levitz would have moved off the book where him and Keith Giffen had been having a, a really historic, highly acclaimed run. They have started to dive into a little heavier storytelling, the little darker storytelling with the Great Darkness Saga and then Curse that followed it up. Mm-hmm. And then Paul Levitz actually left the title and Keith Giffen kind of took over his main plotter and he had some other people working on scripting. 
and really started to take the Legion into a darker, more adult context uh, with Crisis. You know, now the Legion exists in the pocket universe. They weren't part of the the main DC universe future um, since uh, they were still Superboy was still a founding member, but now there was no Superboy in the post Crisis universe, and so. Uh, you had Keith Giffen coming on, taking it into a darker direction, going with the five years later, aging them uh, into adults, and really kind of diving into some heavy stuff. And uh, our friend Ann's actually just wrapped up his coverage of that series. Over five the, years the, later, era? Yeah, uh, the Legion of Super Bloggers. So he's, I believe there's 37 or 38 issues that the series lasted, and he just finished that up a couple weeks ago. So, you know, this is a little bit of an anomaly, uh, as I said in my really lengthy uh, feedback on the Captain Marvel episode of your podcast <laughs> that, uh, you know, this kind of serves as a way to bridge the gap. It's In this case, this one is a, a totally new story that predates her first appearance there in 365, but uh, it's kind of a, a nod to that little bit more classic innocent era of the Legion to kind of send it off in a way to prepare it for, you know, the darker times ahead. Okay, we are going to take a short promotional break now, but when we come back, the story of Shadow Lass. Don't go away. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before he had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. So that's not the Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found. <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you! You said, oh, girl, 
And we're looking at Secret Origins Issue 8. The cover, drawn by Steve Lytle, shows Shadowlass standing to one side, observing Dollman, the issue's second feature, crashing through the darkness she has created as if it's a pane of glass. Uh, what do you think of the cover, Kyle? For the most part, I really enjoy it. It's, you don't see uh, black negative space used on a cover so much, and it's kind of a, a great contrast with the, the black and the dark blue of her uniform. And uh, a nice uh, kind of broken window effect going with Dollman popping through there. I mean, it's Steve Lytle in the mid-'80s. He's kind of the top of his game there, especially uh, he did some uh, Legion work at this time. That's probably why he's tapped to do the cover. So I really like it. It's dynamic. It stands out. It grabs your attention. Uh, you know, give it a, you know like a solid 8 out of 10. Yeah, it is. It's, it definitely has that uh, kind of capture especially with the darkness. It seems like the, the black kind of background in her costume, it, it, it seems it's almost kind of swallowing up the image, which I get is the, the point. Um, but seeing Dollman just kind of crash through is really, really striking. And uh, Shadowlass looks good. I think if we can quote our good friend, the irredeemable Shag, she looks pretty. That's what he says, right? That's what he's known for saying? Uh, he'd say, yeah, she's hot. <laughs> yeah, she's hot. Uh... I hate Shag. <laughs> See, I I drop that like almost every episode. I say, well, it, as I'm uh, contractually obligated to say every episode, Shag Matthews would say she's hot. <laughs> so. All right. Do you want to tell our listeners about the story? Do you want to get into it? Yeah. This one is written by Paul Levitz. Had a long Legion run. He's returned and had a long Legion run. Uh, or the last uh, five years or so, with art by Tom Mandrake, which at this point, this was still pretty young in Tom Mandrake's career. Uh, he worked on mostly war titles and kind of some of the weird war titles uh, for DC at this time. And then, see, this book came out in August, so in January of 87, so just five months later, it uh, would kick off the uh, Shazam! New Beginnings 4-issue miniseries written by Roy Thomas, and Tom Mandrake was the artist on that. Yep. All right. The story opens on Shadowlass's homeworld, Talic 8. Shadowlass is just a young girl named Tasmia, and her city and people need her. They have come under attack from the mountain tribe of warriors known as the Yukamohor. In the past, their people had been defended by the master of the shadow, the great Sarvan Malor. But Sarvan has passed, and so their only hope is Tasmia, his last known ancestor. And so, to save her people and honor the ancestors that have protected Kalak 8 for millennia, Tasmia journeys into the desert with little more than an ancient token her grandfather Sarvan left her. She must scour the desert and unlock the secret to the shadow power that lies dormant within her. In the desert, Tasmia fends off wolves and overcomes starvation before finally coming to an oasis and fainting from exhaustion shortly after meeting a young boy. When Tasmia awakes, she discovers that this boy that dwells in the desert is also an ancestor of the legendary Sarvan Malar, and they are cousins. 
This boy named Grev is Tasmia's cousin, and the two of them represent the final remaining heirs to their grandfather Sarvan. Together, they journey into the ancient cave of their ancestors to learn of their past and unlock the dormant shadow powers within them. Once inside the bowels of the cave, they are confronted by the spirits of their ancestors. Mallor then recounts how he became the master of the shadows. He was a young warrior, and his people had been enslaved by alien invaders. Mallor and a band of warriors stormed their palace, with Mallor leading the charge. As his band of warriors held off the futuristic weaponry and robot sentinels, Mallor strikes at the control panel that powers their palace. The blow decimates the alien stronghold, killing the alien overlords. When Mallor awakes weeks later, he finds that he wields a powerful shadow magic, which he unleashed when he sabotaged the alien central computer. From that day on, he served as the protector of his people. With his tale told, Mauer and his ancestors vanish, leaving his children's children alone in the cave, now both in complete control of the shadow magic that is their birthright. The young Drev stays behind in the desert oasis, watching over the cave, while Shadowlass returns to her city and uses her newfound powers to drive back the mountain invaders. And then that's the end of this story, and it leads into... Uh, her first appearance then in Adventure Comics number 365, like you mentioned earlier. This is a story set up to predate that. And at the very end, we see her flying off in the arms of Monel. Yep, and that's kind of how I first got to know her, is Monel being my favorite uh, Allegiant member, that that was Monel's girlfriend. All right, thoughts on the issue? Well, let's get your thoughts on it. I want to see if you picked up on uh, kind of an allegory that I saw running through it. Um. The first thing that I noticed was, uh, again, not being as versed in the Legion history and the Legion canon. When I think of the Legion, I think far future space opera, you know, big sci-fi concepts. And this story is very much a sword and sorcery story. Um, If the characters didn't have blue skin and you just changed their names a little bit, I thought that this could have been a a warlord story or a Viking prince story, which was surprising, but I also really liked it. It it caught me by surprise. Yeah. The Legion actually has a a really nice balance in it of, especially people that are kind of magic based of really almost having that sword and sorcery feel mixed with the, you know, the Brainiac fives and the super advanced, Mm -hmm. you know, technological beings or, you know, smart futuristic tech of the 31st century and kind of mixed with the barbaric. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, you know, costume-wise, it, you said Warlord. For me, it invoked kind of the He-Man, the Masters of the Universe aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. And especially, like, when you get to Malor's story in the middle of it, um, which was funny because as I was thinking of this story as set in in Tasmia's past, this felt like a flashback within a flashback. Yep. Whenever Grandfather starts telling a story, I was like, ah, that's that's weird, you're not supposed to do that, but... But anyway, um, when Mallor leads his crew and they bust into the castle or the the fortress, the citadel, and this crazy tank-treaded serpent-eyed vehicle, I was like, okay, I'm kind of getting that it's supposed to be like a dragon, but man, it really looks like something out of like an 80s toy franchise. I was like, yep. Um, I liked the story. I, I had a few notes, um, but yeah, overall, it was just it, it surprised me that this felt like this didn't feel like a science fiction story so much as a classical fantasy story with a few sci-fi tropes in terms of the technology. Yep. And maybe that's, I, I really love this story and maybe that's one of the reasons why it resonates so well with me beyond, you know, being the Legion is I, I love adventure type 
comics. Uh, mm-hmm. I love Conan the Bear, Ball Bear, uh, Ball Bearing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Conan the <laughs> Conan the Barbarian comics and Warlord comics and Viking Prince, like you mentioned. I really love those sword and sorcery adventure uh, type comics. So it was really neat to see that twist added to you know uh, the Legion of Superheroes, which you know team I have passion for. For me, I really saw like a a kind of a Native American allegory or inspiration to the story you had kind of the you know their society based around honoring their ancestors mm-hmm. uh, she takes like a a vision quest journey into the desert yes and then in the flashback then the flashback within the flashback you know we see uh her grandfather uh fight off these alien invaders with advanced technology you know kind of similar to white yeah. people with advanced technology <laughs> in, invading so uh, I don't know if that was Levitz's intent, but really seemed like there was a lot of uh, Native American inspiration going on behind the story, which is odd. I mean, typically, if you think of kind of the, the Native American representation in the Legion of Superheroes, it's going to be Dawnstar. Sure. Yeah. Going through uh, more closely on page three, when Tasmia is brought into the the hall with all of the the citizens of her her village, um, the guards announce her as either Malor's granddaughter or perhaps great-niece. That seems like a strange thing to not know or not mention, and I was wondering if Paul Levitz was doing like a retcon or changing something in that. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, like that, that feels like... Yeah, why is he planting that egg there and right. it never really comes to fruition? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't ever remember that being explored. Uh, on page five, I really like the fact that she fights off the kind of wolf monsters and the fact that she uses fire to do it, um, and fire being light and heat, kind of thinking of the opposite of what her power is going to be yeah, in a, very in a true. matter of pages. So it's kind of... This is like the last time she she has the chance to do this type of thing before her power set is going to be the sort of complete opposite. It's also, I mean, it's it's cool in establishing that she is heroic and she is formidable before she gets her powers. Um, and this is this is a recurring theme that I keep noticing it a lot more in the DC comics. And I brought this up when I was talking to Shag during the Firestorm episode. Is that the DC heroes? would be heroic. They would be superior people, superior men and women, even if they didn't have their powers. And I think we kind of see this. Even if Tasmian never became a superpowered being capable of wielding this this shadow magic, she's still prepared to go out into the desert and to fight off these monsters with whatever tools she has available to herself. Um, She's not given these gifts by accident, by some sort of cosmic fluke. She is worthy of this by birthright and by her behavior. Yeah, totally. She's, I mean, but the very definition of heroic is selfless. And she pretty much makes something along the lines of a comment of, well, she has no idea how she's going to do it, how she's going to unlock this ancient power to save her people, but her people need saves. So she's either going to save them or die trying. And, you know, that's, it's a very good point, and that's something that I have always been drawn to DC a little bit over Marvel because of that selflessness. Uh, the one uh, ex- exemption, I guess, or exception 
would be i mean I, I like a lot of marvel comics but my favorite character has always been captain america right. and, and that's think, because he's more of a dc based that selfless character before and i think that has to do with the age in which he was created yes i think because he wasn't he's not from the stanley jack kirby marvel age even though they resurrected him during that time and they had a long storied history with the character he he is purposely he doesn't fit in with them um, and I think I think that's that's obvious to see that he is much more of a DC type of character. Yes, I totally agree. And unfortunately, with current day DC, that seems to be something they've forgotten. <sighs> yeah, I. Uh, it's it really seems like they don't have a grasp or remember what it is that made these heroes in the the first place, and so they're trying to imprint that Marvel aesthetic on it, and it's not sticking real well. And and for the first time in their history that I remember, it looks like Marvel is trying to be DC. Yeah, it's like a really weird cycle. And, uh, okay, I, I, don't, I don't even want to get into that. I was, at, <laughs> I was looking at some of the solicitations, and I was like, well, I'm going to be back issue hunting for my comic fix for a while. Yeah, I pretty much moved on to just IDW stuff for new yeah. comics. That's about it. Yeah. And, uh, Back issue diving. Um, uh, in keeping with the story, um, issue or page seven, when Tasmia meets Grev, they take it pretty well when they find out that they have the same grandfather. Um, I, I think usually when people find out that their relative had a secret family that they didn't know about, that either ends up in some sort of sitcom hilarity or binding arbitration in some kind of lawsuit. Or sometimes both. But they seem to be like, oh, yeah, you're my half-brother or my cousin. Cool. <laughs> and that's what made me I wonder if that's what Levitz was going with back in that note, that either his great-grandniece or uh, granddaughter is, you know, maybe it was almost like uh, he was put out to stud, and yeah. that was just kind of an accepted thing. He had so many heirs, they couldn't keep track, but they're all gone except her. Does Grev come back in the Legion stories? Is like, I I mean, I know the Legion comes to her homeworld in her first appearance, but do they ever go back there? Do they ever come back to this world? Are these characters recurring supporting players? That's not something I can remember off the top of my head. I don't think uh, nothing stands out, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't been because as much as the Legion I've. Re- that I've read, it's still a, a drop in the pan. So I don't recall any stories, but I would think with the way they set him up at the end as, you know, Talakate's pretty much home defender, right. that they would have gone back there and we would have seen that explored a little bit. But again, with Levitz leaving the title, maybe that was something he had planted that yeah. never ended up coming to fruition. Especially since he has the same power that she does. It seems yeah. like that's... That's a pretty big dangling plot line if that never turns into anything. But uh, yeah. But just in case, you know, if, if Russell Burbage or Siskoid or Ange or anybody else from the Legion of Super Bloggers, if you're listening, if you've got that information, let us know. Yeah. I think I kind of hit upon all of my notes. Oh, during uh, Mallor's story, the flashback... The fact that the background behind the panels is all runes, like rune yeah. stones, very interesting. Cause, because, like, they're not—it's not alien symbols. Those are actual runes. You can find those 
You know, you can you can Google search what those mean, and they all have a meaning. That's part of the runic alphabet. Yeah, I thought I thought it was an interesting or nice touch. I guess it kind of, you know, they're behind the panels. They're going with a black negative space effect. You know, to draw on that origin of the shadow that the story serves as. So it's kind of nice to uh, break that up a little bit. At times, it seems a little busy. Mm-hmm. And obviously, in uh, 1986, when this came out, there wasn't Google, so <laughs> a lot of people, I'm sure, just looked at it and was kind of, "Oh, that's neat." Wait, there, were, there was life before Google? <laughs> the hell you say? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it does. It's it is kind of an interesting way of differentiating the pages of the flashback. Yeah, that's true. We don't get the uh, traditional rounded corners or you know kind of bubbly borders that you typically get in a flashback in this story. It's still the, for the most part, square uh, layout. Sometimes when the the blacks on the side, it's a little uneven, but it's not that full kind of dream effect that you traditionally have with the panels. Yeah. With the shadows intruding and how pale blue Malor looks and like the first time we see him with his bright red eyes there's I, I got like a lot of vampire imagery from him and even part of his story of developing this supernatural power while he's trying to save his people that felt almost like Dracula like Prince Dracula even like before the novel like his his sort of historic uh, story like yeah I, I think Levitz is drawing on a lot of themes and a lot of stories in here and from an standpoint it's certainly it I, i'm certainly getting mandrake sort of seeing when where he will go with books like the specter and martian manhunter in terms of playing on these like very sort of dark dark tones and then um pages 20 to 21 we kind of get a, a brief look into her first appearance then a recap of that adventure yeah in from uh, adventure comics 365 and 366 and so pretty much what happens there is uh, she serves as an ambassador to the United Planets, and that's where she meets uh, the Legion members. Uh, let's see. It looks like we have Brainiac 5, Cosmic Boy, Superboy, and Karate, Karate Kid. Kid. Yeah. And uh, they get kind of a distress message while she's there that you know, Talek 8's kind of under attack and they go there and there's kind of some warring factions going on and they uncover that this is all orchestrated by the, the fatal five uh, Legion villains. And so yeah. after she assists them in freeing her home world, she's inducted as a member into the Legion. It's, it's kind of funny. I have, have you read the uh, secret history of Marvel comics? Um, I have not finished it. Um, it's like whenever I get a down moment, I'll, I'll go through it. I'm about a hundred pages in, but I haven't finished okay. it. I, I couldn't help but see the irony or the humor in that, uh, her first appearance being written by Jim Shooter was a two part story when, uh, when he was an editor at Marvel, he all of a sudden came up with the editorial mandate that there could be no continued stories. <laughs> and so obviously he didn't have a problem as a writer doing a two issue stories, but as an editor, yeah. Not allowed. So that uh, editorial mandate killed the uh, Roger Stern, John Byrne run on Captain America. Yeah, that was tough. You mentioned how Monel was your favorite Legion member, and part in part because he was the Superman surrogate, and you were such a good fan of Superman. Um, I find, at least for my part, again, not not being a big 
Legion fan, but when I was first getting into comics, the X-Men was one of my gateway drugs. Um, certainly like in, in the late eighties, early nineties, I was big into X-Men and they were, there are parallels in that they're both teams with huge casts of characters. And I think one of the benefits of such a thing is everybody, every reader can connect with somebody, you know, every, every reader can feel a connection or a pull. Like every one of these Legion members is somebody's favorite, I think that's probably why they have such a, a fan base and why a concept like this that is so, you know, it, it seems like the Legion is like, I don't know. And I, I could be just way off base, but it seems like it would be such a niche type of title for DC's more tried and true heroic fan base. They're like their, their sort of heroic culture. But I think the Legion has so many diehard fans because the cast is so big that everybody everybody can see themselves in this in this team. And I think also because the Legion, it's it's an inclusive group. It's not exclusive. Like it seems like they were willing to invite everybody to join. Well, everybody except Rob Kelly, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, I, I totally agree. And also, you know, with them debuting in 1958, that predates uh, the Teen Titans as well. So that would have really been the first kind of teen uh, group or teen team um, yeah, yeah. being published in comics. So I think they developed a, a fan base pretty quickly because of that uh, relatability as far as uh, young readers go. And, you know, I think that's just kind of carried over. It's crazy to think about now. There's no Legion book being published. But even when uh, after Final Crisis, the Legions had a resurgence. They actually had two monthly books going on. They brought back Adventure Comics, and then they had a Legion ongoing. And then when the New 52 launched, they had Legion and Legion Lost. And then they also did Legion Secret Origin, a miniseries through that. So four years ago, (laughs) three years ago, we were getting three monthly legion titles and now there's none it's so it's it's easy to forget their popularity but uh, that's the same popularity or even higher uh, popularity would have been in the 80s at the time this book came out i mean it was like teen titans and mm-hmm. legion of superheroes and firestorm were the three highest selling books it's crazy so suck on that batman fans <laughs> Uh, Kyle, if our listeners wanted to read some more about Shadowlass or if they wanted just the Legion in general, um, where could they find some good Legion of Superhero stories? Uh, there's a lot of great Legion stories out there. Uh, really just kind of depends on your taste. If you find yourself kind of liking more modern comics and you're looking for a good starting point uh, to dive into a fairly recent take on the Legion, uh, my recommendation would be starting with Mark Wade's run there from the early 2000s that Barry Kitson started on the art. And then it turned into lead, our Supergirl and the Legion of Superheroes, I want to say, like issue 14 of that series. Yeah. Uh, those are all collected in trade, and they're probably in back issue bins as well. I picked up some of the, the later issues from that series for 50 cents a piece. And so uh, I would start there. If you find yourself kind of being a fan of Silver Age comics or Bronze Age comics, uh, good Legion stuff from the, the Bronze Age. It's a little darker take would be the Great Darkness Saga and Curse. Those are both out in trade paperbacks now, I know. And if you if you really like the Silver Age, uh, I really have a fondness for Silver Age comics. Pick up the Showcase Presents Legion volumes. 
I know there's at least three out. Uh, Shadowlass's first appearance uh, in Adventure Comics 365 and 366 is reprinted in the third volume, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I want to say a fourth volume was just released in is either late 2014 or early 2015. Okay. Uh, so that's a great cheap way to start there, especially if you're getting those off of in-stock trades or pretty much half price. I second the recommendation for the Mark Wade saga or series just because that's that's what I'm familiar with. I know I think that was collected in six trade paperbacks. And I yeah. think I think it became Supergirl and the Legion of Superheroes with the third trade. Okay. Um, and then short of that, uh, the the one that I always hear recommended is the Great Darkness saga and Curse, which comes right after that. And I know those are both those are both collected in, I think, even like deluxe hardcover format, too. Yes, they are. Mark Wade's run, too, seems to be pretty new reader friendly. Uh, a lot of times they hear that the, the Legion is impenetrable, and it certainly is. So, again, when Paul Levitz took over, I really enjoyed his stories, but he really kind of just picked up like the last 20 years hadn't happened and picked off right where he had left off right around the time of crisis. And mm-hmm. so it uh, requires kind of some back knowledge and some heavy reading on your part to kind of immerse yourself, especially with the, the giant cast of characters. Whereas Mark Wade's is pretty, what that was, was they were setting up a totally new Legion backstory. It was like a new Legion in a parallel universe. So it's right from the ground up. That's how I was able to understand it. Yeah. Reimagining of the Legion. So new readers can jump right in on that one. Yeah. And it has one of my favorite all time story reveals having to do with dream girl. And I won't say any more than that. <laughs> so, okay. Um, any other thoughts on this story, Kyle? No, I really enjoyed it. Great writing, uh, really enjoyable, uh, interesting, action-packed story. Which not too bad for a flashback, and really enjoyed the art. Great, great. Uh, Kyle, where can people find you online, or what podcasts can they listen to to hear your voice some more? Uh, they can go to my blog page, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun and uh, there I post all my episodes. I right now have four shows; they're all on the same feed. So, if you just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun on iTunes, you can subscribe to the feed and listen to all four shows. Uh, one is my main uh, series, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, where I just review and discuss giant size comics. Uh, typically from the Bronze Age or Silver Age. Um, then I have Random Comic Showcase where I just talk about whatever. And let's see, my third one is uh, Free Comic Spotlight where I discuss free comics, things from like Free Comic Book Day or special promos. And then my fourth one is the uh, Crisis on Multiple Earths uh, podcast where I'm working my way through the eight Christ on Multiple Earths trade paperbacks. There's six of the actual JLA, JSA team-ups, and then two trades of team-ups between the characters of Earth 1 and Earth 2. Those are a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much for being part of this episode, Kyle. I had a great time, and I hope you can come back again in the future. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me on. Don't go away, because the secret origin of Dalman is coming up after the break. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. 
These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. We are back, and my next guest started as a one-man blogosphere and has now created so many new podcasts in the last year he's practically his own super team. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Diablo Frank. How are you, buddy? Doing well. I'm not currently working on one of my own podcasts, so it's a nice break to just work on yours. Frank is here to help me cover the secret origin of Dollman. And Frank, why is that? Why are you here for this episode? Uh, two reasons. One is I just tend to like shrinking heroes, and I figure if I can corner a market, that could be one. Uh, the other is that Dollman is actually a pretty cool character that people don't really have much regard for. He's kind of treated as a throwaway, and there was a time where he was sort of a, a no pun intended, big deal. So uh, I just kind of like to pay tribute to that. And I tend to like the Golden Age heroes anyway, especially the non-Marvel, non-DC ones, because they were given short shrift. And a lot of them got gobbled up uh, by DC as though it were Pac-Man and then forgotten about. And I like to remind people that, hey, there was more stuff out there than just Marvel and DC back in the day. That there were other viable heroes that large, often influenced what became the heroes we know today. We're recording this a couple weeks in advance, but this episode will probably drop a few days after Ant-Man is released in theaters in the United States. So that's sort of in keeping with the theme of the shrinking heroes. Ah, synergy. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, do we want to get more into this character, or do you want to dive right into the story synopsis? Uh, I'll tell you what, let's, let's go with the story, and then the, the listeners can decide whether they want, they want to continue listening to us after that. Or just shut it off and turn on something else. Right. All right, well, go ahead, man. Okay, so the story, it's just called Dollman. It's written by Roy Thomas, who's credited as the writer-creative editor. And then the next credit is David Cody Weiss as letterer, which I don't understand and I, I kind of take umbrage with. <laughs> On well, the plus side, he does have smaller print than the other two major creators. But when, have, when has a letter ever taken such a liberty to letter himself a second-tier uh, credit? I have a feeling that this was some sort of petty revenge against the artist and colorist, that they were out to drinks one time and somebody said something that David Cody Weiss found offensive. And just to kind of, just to kind of screw with Murphy Anderson a little bit, he's like, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to put my name above yours. Well, and Weiss was a writer too, so that's why he probably deferred to Thomas on that one portion instead of putting himself as top bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of illustrators, this is done by the great Murphy Anderson, who, if you don't love him as an artist on his own right, you probably loved him as Kurt Swan's primary inker on Superman comics of the Silver and Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to not, you know, kind of, since we've spent so much time on the letter, I'd also like to mention Carl Gafford, the colorist, and Robert Greenberger with the coordinating editor title, which is kind of sad because you know Roy Thomas is really running the show. For his own material, yes. <laughs> And uh, this is a 16-page story based on an original four-page story credited to William Irwin Maxwell, who doesn't exist, but that was how the credits ran throughout most of Feature Comics, and this specific story uh, is derived from Feature Comics number 27, his first appearance. All right. So 
the story starts with a phone ring at a stately manor, and the beautiful Martha Roberts stops her father from answering it because she feels the need to pick up this particular call. Uh, she ends up connected to this greasy creep named Falco who's blackmailing her, has already gotten several grand out of her, and now wants to meet her in person at 8 o'clock. So even though she tries to put up a fight, ultimately she agrees to go. Meanwhile, her father, Professor Roberts, goes to visit Daryl Dane, a very handsome, square-jawed scientist in a lab that they share, and he brings along his cat, Shere Khan, which is another of Thomas's many literary pretensions popping up in one of these secret origin stories. So both Professor Roberts and Daryl Dane discuss their concern over these phone calls that Martha's been receiving, but ultimately they figure when it's time she'll let them know if there's anything the matter. So then Daryl begins to show the experiment that he's working on. He injects a rat named Harry that he'd caught wild in Professor Robert's barn and the rat begins to shrink. Then he becomes super strong. He jumps out of a beaker only to be eaten by Shere Khan. And they make a big deal about how the, the rat was wild caught and how it was squealing a lot. And ultimately it just seems like they were padding out the story because you're waiting for that to, to amount to something and it, it's completely meaningless. It's just a way to fill out panels. Um, so anyway, so this is the first success that Daryl Dane has had with his shrinking formula, which he had not confided in his future father-in-law that he was in the works for. Um, he, he's never done any human trials either. So they're discussing how they might make that work and Professor Roberts suggests adding aqua rahia to the mixture. So Daryl Dane does and then immediately just goes bottoms up and then starts shrinking. And that's like one of my first like checking out a story kind of moments because this is the Great Depression. You can't tell me you couldn't find some poor bum to do a human trial on. You're going to try this thing out the first thing. As soon as you've gotten your first successful experiment, this first rat shrunk, then you're going to drink it yourself. So it's hard to get it on this guy's side after that. He kind of loses you just from that point onward. And it's not the weirdest thing he does in the, in the story, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, so he drinks the stuff, and then they're just sort of like standing around going, huh, I guess nothing's going to happen. Boy, it's a good thing I didn't just poison myself or something stupid like that. Um, so then all of a sudden he goes, arg, and he starts shrinking out of his clothes, which we've seen a bunch of times in the movies. But wasn't there a Lily Tomlin movie where she did that as well? Uh, if there isn't, there should be. I'm pretty confident she was like the incredible shrinking woman. <laughs> anyway, so the guy shrinks, and then all of a sudden you have this bare-ass beefcake running around. Murphy Anderson, I assume – I don't know that it's safe to assume, but this is a guy who clearly enjoyed drawing naked men. So good on him if he was just trying to please the wife. I don't know what the plan was. Um, so he puts together this impromptu loincloth because you've got a six-inch Daryl Dane now that shrank out of his clothes. And he calls himself the Tarzan of the Tom Thumb set. And he's still having this discussion with his future father-in-law. Hops into the old man's hand, and apparently Daryl Dane now weighs only a pound, but he's stronger than he is at normal size. But then all of a sudden he gets really belligerent and starts saying, so what? That doesn't mean I couldn't take you apart, old man. And, and the old man's like, you know, what the heck's going on here? Obviously this forum's had, formula's had some adverse effect on you know, this kid. Also, Dane becomes very vulnerable with sound. He can't stand the noise of full-size people talking. So anyway, so Shere Khan turns up again. Uh, Dane's attacked by the cat and grabs the cat by the tail and just swings it around his head and then throws him. And then goes, ha, it'll be a cold day in hell before Shere Khan bothers me again. Well, his father-in-law is trying to calm him down because he realizes that there's obviously something a little bit unbalanced about Daryl at the moment. But Dane just punches the old guy out. Old guy falls to the floor. Shortly afterwards, his daughter Martha shows up and uh, – Professor Roberts recovers and then retells the story that we had just read over the course of several pages. Again, more filler. Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, the madness was temporary and Daryl Dane had already confided in Martha that he'd been working on the shrinking experiment so she doesn't completely freak out or faint or anything like that. 
and he begins to collect his senses and he becomes uh, mentally normal again. But unfortunately, he also realizes that he has no antidote and that they just have to hope that he's going to go back to normal size. Uh, but he does assure his gal, my love for you definitely didn't shrink. Uh, Martha kind of gives him a little kiss on the forehead and calls him adorable. So he just grabs her by the cheeks and gives her a full-on kiss. Hey, what kind of kiss is that? I may be doll size now, but I'm still a man, and don't you forget it. Uh, so There's so much going on in this section. Yeah, I, I would like you to break down the subtext here. There's <laughs> definitely some weird stuff going on. So Martha becomes visibly upset, and Daryl's like, no matter how small I get, I can still fit my foot in my mouth. Um, but they just sort of settle in. Martha makes him the little doll man costume, an exact replica of the suit that he was going to be wearing for the rest of the series. And they're just sort of hanging out, waiting to see what's going to happen. Uh, Doctor, Professor Roberts is going through his books, trying to find something that might help, but he can't find anything. And he makes a point of mentioning, we've only just split the atom thus far. You know, a little, little reference there. You knew what, what mm-hmm. Thomas was going for. So while they're hanging out, this roadster pulls up in the front, and uh, Martha goes out to meet him. It's obviously Falco turning up to blackmail her. Dane sees him through the window and recognizes him as having a face only a post office could love, which is a great line that nobody probably gets now and definitely won't get in 20 years. Yeah, of course. Basically, back in the day when people knew each other and you lived in a smaller town, you'd go to the post office, and that's where all the wanted posters were. So if somebody who wasn't familiar to the town showed up and looked like one of those guys at the post office, you could finger them. But nowadays, nobody knows. That you, nowadays, everybody just assumes that everybody else is a criminal anyway. Right. He even mentions a poster marked wanted for mail fraud. And based on Falco's look, I don't think mail fraud is the worst thing he's capable of. Well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Daryl runs out and jumps on the bumper of the roadster before he can pull away. We find out that Falco has a hold of a letter that has some incriminating information in it that Martha doesn't want to get out. And since he happens to have it in his breast pocket, Martha tries to steal it from it while he's driving the roadster. The car veers. Daryl Dane falls off the, the bumper and hits his head on a rock. Uh, Falco stops the car and basically says, look, I want ten grand for this letter. But Martha only has seven, so Falco decides he's going to try to take the rest out in trade if you get the riff. And if you don't, don't worry. They're going to spell out he's going to try to rape her. Uh, So Martha bolts the car. She does the old ankle twist from every horror movie ever, knocks herself out. Falco gives chase, uh, trying to get some some loving, some of that surprise sex. And uh, Dollman manages to catch up with him, grabs him by the ankle. Falco falls to his knees, and then Dollman starts punching him repeatedly in the face. Falco manages to clear his head for a moment and thinks he's seeing a leprechaun, and Dane says, right, well, he's going to knock you clear to the end of the rainbow. Uh, there's another foot grab, and this time Dane actually swings the entire full-grown man over his head like he had done the cat previously. Uh, Falco goes to the ground, finally uh, gets the letter out and says, why didn't you tell me that's all you wanted? Uh, so then he beats it, and Dane starts mansplaining. There's no point in prosecuting that lowlife. It would probably just cause Martha even more anguish instead of you know, like letting her wake up and tell him what she wants to do. He just makes the decision for her. Good going, 1940s. Martha awakens to Daryl at normal size, and she tears up the letter. Uh, they explain that Dane and Martha had been together for two years now, that the postmark on the letter was earlier, so Daryl figures it's none of his business. So I guess he can be progressive when he wants to be. Uh, so he's not going to ask her any questions, but she doesn't want to have a scarlet letter on her breast, which, once again, Roy Thomas letting us know that he reads books. Mm-hmm. She tells him that she was involved with an older male professor in college for a few weeks, that she wrote him this letter after that had ended, but she didn't want anybody to find out that she had apparently you know, done some stuff <laughs> in her college years. Uh, 
Dane basically says, look, just because you got, went to college doesn't mean you got all the answers. All I need is love, baby. And since she approves of him and approves of him continuing to adventure as Dollman, they're, they're upset as a couple. And in fact, uh, the last panel is a picture of Doll Girl, which is a, an adventurous that Martha would become in the future. And that is the secret origin of Dollman. It's okay. I actually like the original story better, I think, because they managed to get across all that ground in a, just four pages. And uh, you really like that propulsive quality because it's every single panel you need where this story is full of these redundancies. And there's, there's uh, some melodrama in there, which I don't think was necessary. Um, I like it. Like in the original story, it's Dane and the professor just talking about the formula in the parlor. The professor uh, recommends the aqua regia. They both go down to work in the lab, and Martha's like, well, nobody's paying attention to me anyway. I'll go answer the phone. And then things start to play out the way they had in the original story. The uh, cat, Tippy the cat, doesn't actually turn up until the second doll man story. Mm-hmm. And instead of being this like intense feral cat, it's like a little white cat with a bow on. So it's kind of cute. It's almost like a bullying when doll man beats his ass. <laughs> um, in the original story, the, the formula takes immediate effect, and he's instantly in boxers. So I'm sorry, no, no, no little uh, uh, um, cheesecake for the ladies there. No beefcake. No Frank's uh, agenda. Yeah, uh, and he immediately has that wild look in his eyes too. So it's not this weirdness where he shrinks and they're talking for a little bit and then he starts to get a little bit nutty. It's like as soon as the formula hits him, he's he's screwy in the head. And in fact, uh, the professor says something along the lines of his mind shrank. And then uh, you see from the perspective of uh, Daryl Dane that the doctor's sort of going, I told you so. And you can see him kind of freaking out, which makes you more involved in the story. Plus, he throws a hypodermic at the doctor in that one, which is pretty cool. It's kind of intense seeing the hypodermic like foreshortened right at you. Um, I also like, too, there's this one moment where he sort of pulls, uh, uh, sticks out his chest and, and he's in the, the, the height of his madness as he's going, with my small body and great strength, I will be invincible! Ha <laughs> uh, Which is pretty cool because Somebody thinks that being six inches would be a good thing for them in the world. Um, in the original story, he sort of jumps on Martha's shoulder and he's just like, it's me. I'm little. How you doing? And um, it's just cool because it moves so much faster. Um, they also make a point in that first story to say that Daryl Dane was supposed to have had the strength of 20 men. So it's not just that he's got his proportionate strength at a smaller size. He really does have super strength. Mm-hmm. And he immediately goes for the superhero route too saying, I shall devote myself to a crusade against crime and evil. So it's, it, it just brings you in more when they, when they just go straight for it. Uh, it gets you by the huevos, you know? Yeah. Uh, the Falco fight is mostly the same except that in that one, is the finishing move is that Dane finds a twig and catapults himself through the air and then punches the guy in the face. Um, they mention the letter in the original story but never its contents. And I, I like to think that maybe there was some sort of Anais Nin type stuff in there. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think that Martha must have like just sort of worked on the spot. It's like, oh, yeah, I was just dating a professor. Nothing like really creepy or kinky in there. <laughs> Nothing that I wouldn't be willing to give thousands of dollars to keep out of the press. And in the original story too, Dane never doesn't become a grown man again until a later story. So you don't really know if he's going to be stuck as Dollman for the rest of the time. So you got more of an implied drama where this story tries to sell it through vo- verbal you know, speeches and then you know, ends up letting you know, oh, everything's okay after all anyway. So his little bout with insanity was from the original story, like after oh, yeah. it changes? Oh, yeah. And like I said, I think it's better than the original story because the, the megalomania is much more amusing. Mm-hmm. The original story is four pages. This, pa- this story is 16 pages. However, the first page is kind of a splash page, and the last page in this is mostly a splash page of Doll Girl. So it's really only about 14 pages that they filled out. But even still, with 
the panel breakdowns and everything. Like most pages on this have nine, ten, or eleven panels. Like they still they 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 fluff this one up a lot. Oh yeah, I mean it's still four times longer. And the original story was like really tiny boxes. There was not. It, it, it didn't take its time either. Uh, it's just there's a lot more dialogue in this, and it's one of those things like if you ever watch a TV show and something important has happened, and then you're expecting the characters to tell the other characters exactly what happened, and they don't, mm-hmm. and you're kind of frustrated because that's what you expect. But if you stop and you think about it, do you really want to spend two minutes with the characters telling you what you just saw? Exactly. Uh, well, in this story, that's exactly what they do, and they do that several times throughout the story. You just read these two pages, and then they're recapping the pages you just read. So that's where a lot of that space ends up going to. This is a bizarrely sexually charged story. Like, uh, yeah, oh, definitely. There's, there's, <laughs> like, it, it, it manifests in really weird places. Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, and they, they, that's one thing that they make a point of too is Gerald Dane is a manly man. He's not just some little scientist, and he's going to make sure you know that as much as possible. And the, the strips are like that too. It's like they're, it's a very action-packed, very butch kind of strip. He might be called Doll Man, but there's no questioning that he's he's all macho, all man. It almost too much. So makes you you know kind of wonder a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, he has no problem just like. Sp- basically dressing like Tarzan where he's sporting nothing but underwear or like just his torn jacket in the shape of underwear. Um, he's obviously pretty secure with himself. Uh, and just, yeah, like the elements where, okay, Martha is almost raped by this guy Falco, but even before that in the scene where you described where she kisses tiny Dane on like the forehead or on the cheek and he just grabs her face and that line, I may be doll-sized now, but I'm still a man, and don't you forget it. It's There's this weird forcefulness to that that's just kind of creepy, and and she goes running off, basically like crying, and obviously she's she's full of conflicting things going on right now because she's being blackmailed, but that's weird. Well, and then, and then even the nature of her blackmail, she's, she's being blackmailed, essentially, or at least what she says, because she had an affair with a college professor, and her father is a professor, and her husband is a scientist. Like, this is... It's, it's like yeah, there's, there's sex all over this really weird short story, and I, even the imagery of the doll man is just... <laughs> it's, well, and, and not just that. It's like Doll Man was the male Wonder Woman in that if you look at the covers from the Golden Age, he is constantly in bondage scenarios. He's very like violent bondage scenarios. And most of the time his costume involved just a tunic essentially. So he's got bare legs splayed out, often like pulled apart by twine and his arms are pulled behind him and things are wrapped around his neck. It's like th- there was definitely an appeal to this character that went beyond just shrinking superhero. Yeah, I imagine. That's that's. And see, I'm wondering if Thomas's intention with with that kiss me moment was just to to give a context for Dane to assume that she was uh, uh, messed up over the how that impacts their engagement, where in fact she's probably more messed up about the blackmailing scenario. But I think he creates more problems than he solves with that moment, or he's just letting us in on the subtext we might have missed otherwise. And then the fact that he beats up her father-in-law, his future, or her father, his future father-in-law. Like, do, yeah, I'm kind of, How is this a show of manly prowess? You're beating up this old man. <laughs> uh, it's a crazy story. It's it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed reading this, but I have no idea what to make of it. One of the great things about Golden Age stories is that they're so id-driven. It's like these guys weren't consciously trying to do this weird stuff, but weird stuff was coming out of the people creating these stories. And it, it, I find that much more entertaining than the uh, more sanitized Silver Age material. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And it's, I mean, certainly, like he he gets points because he's beating up a, a potential rapist at the end. And uh, you know, aside from Nazis, there's not a, an easier go-to villain. He, but still, at the end of both stories, he just sort of shrugs off and lets the guy go. Like, well, <laughs> you know, that that that, that was a party foul, dude. Yeah, they, I mean, you destroyed the evidence, but you still of of the one blackmailing crime, but you still could have gotten him on a sexual assault conviction. But I don't know. Uh, I mean, there was something much deeper in that letter than they went into. I guarantee there's some kind of like David Lynchian type stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was. Um, it was it was a good MacGuffin. That's fun to just kind of imagine what was there. But yeah, it's. And by fun, we mean skeevy. Yes. Yes. Um, in terms of the art, I mean, you mentioned how great Murphy Anderson is. Uh, I love Murphy Anderson, and I know I think it's Shag that has some issues with that guy, but I, I just adore his work. And he makes a point of mentioning uh, Lou Fine in the like. There's a little um, mm-hmm. credit box at the end of the story. Is is that where it's at? Yeah, it's right at the last page. Where it just talks about how awesome and and the, it definitely the early years of Dollman were an art showcase, and that's probably a big part of where the appeal came from was the the gorgeous art in those early years. Yeah, yeah. And Murphy Anderson was obviously heavily influenced by Lou Fine, so it makes perfect sense for him to be doing the story. Yeah, and didn't Lou? Didn't Murphy Anderson do a lot of the Lou Fine characters in Secret Origins, like the Ray and Black Condor? Did the Ray even get a Secret The Ray origin? did not get a Secret Origin story. Uh, that would be part of it, then. Because I'm trying to think of which Freedom Fighters got one, and I think it's only Dollman, Black Condor, and Uncle Sam. Uh, what about Phantom Lady? Phantom Lady did not get a Secret Origin story. Oh, drag. Otherwise, that would have been the first one I bought. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I especially like the way Anderson draws faces. They, they, they're so expressive, so full of character, but it never seems like he's going from just a standard model sheet of what a head looks like, the way mm-hmm. a lot of artists from like the 80s and 90s and the, the image kind of crowd drew. Yeah. Like the way he draws Falco on page 13, this rat-like face that is, that's just it's like, that is that is an old school cartoonist image. Right. Like that, you know, you know that's where his his background is coming from. He can do it's, a heavily caricatured face and still make it realistic enough for you to believe it. Yeah, it's almost in a way like I I really I wouldn't necessarily think of them like compare them, but it kind of reminds me of Brian Bolland's technique and the way Brian Bolland draws faces, which is almost photorealistic but not quite. And it's yeah, there's just something about the way he 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 uses those faces. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to bring up Ball in just a little bit, but not in reference to Murphy Anderson. Anderson, I always like that softness. It's like he, he's got action, but because of his feathering technique, there's a greater sense of motion. That's why he was so great inking over uh, Kurt Swan, who most of his critics would say has a tendency towards sniffness and, uh, stiffness, and Murphy Anderson would really loosen him up and make him feel like these characters were more alive. Um, so I, I, but I like that there is a sort of delicacy to his figures where they do feel like it's a person in motion. You're not capturing them in a still photograph with every little line of their face rendered. They're just enough to where they look like real people without overdoing it and making it too static. So I, I love that about him. And of course, Swanderson were big influences on Jim Starlin, who's one of my favorite artists too. So that doesn't hurt. Daryl's decision to test the formula on himself. I feel like with with as much padding as Roy Thomas gave to the story, he could have taken a little bit of liberty with this section and given some explanation. Because I think like even it's it's sort of the 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 base the old 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde trope of the, the scientist creating some unique formula, some unique drug, and testing it on himself, and it has some crazy effect that he didn't anticipate. Although in this case, it does have the exact effect that he expected. But with a lot of those types of stories, at least in modern tellings and contemporary versions of them, there's a sense of immediacy or urgency in why the scientist tests it on himself. And I, there's, there's no need... First of all, like this, if he didn't anticipate that his strength would be bolstered, why would he be creating this type of formula? What was the need for shrinking if he didn't anticipate the other benefits or the other gains he would get from it? And why specifically would he want to shrink living things? Yeah, yeah, it, definitely. I, that's actually – I think I was listening to Views from the Long Box and Michael Bailey was talking to his wife about the Fantastic Four trailer. And he was having to explain to her that the reason why the Fantastic Four became what they were was because they were locked in the space race with the Soviets in that time period. And they basically had to steal that rocket and get out of space immediately or the Soviets were going to beat them. So you had that, that urgency, that need to get this done now and you know say – you know, caution, throw caution to the wind. Mm-hmm. And now it's much harder to explain, well, why do the four people who are most involved in the scientific work, the brains that you can't afford to sacrifice, what are they doing being in, directly involved in this experiment, experience? Why uh, don't you have the, the equivalent of astronauts doing the actual physical activity? And, you know, they're, they're, you have to explain, you know, it doesn't make sense. And even the layperson knows that that's in no way a scientifically valid method of, of uh, applic- applying these theories. So you have to figure out why this person would do this. And if you've got somebody like Kirk Connors who's got the one arm and he's, and he's having trouble dealing with that, then you can kind of understand where he would make that leap and drink the formula and get the arm and then it turns into a lizard arm. Especially, Which, if, especially be- if you understand like the outside forces – basically saying, no, you can't do this. We can't let you further this experiment. But there's a sense of desperation for him because it has an immediate need. Yeah, there's no light at the end of the tunnel for him otherwise. They're never going to let him go to human trials. So the only way he can ever get his arm back is by taking the the, uh, serum himself. That makes sense. Daryl Dane, he's already a man among men. He's a big guy. There's no reason for him to want anything to be smaller that we know of. So why is he just going to down the serum so early in its development to boot? Especially if they just added a new chemical element to the to the formula, test it on another rat before you do anything, just in case. Yeah, because it was the first time he was successful, and he didn't have any time to study the rat either, because it jumps out of the basin, the beaker, and goes directly into Shere Khan's tummy, which goes against the the principles of the story. I guess you need to have the rock borer here because it doesn't make sense that the rat doesn't chew its way out of Shere Khan's tummy or otherwise rip it to pieces. It should have the might of 20 rats. Right, and then you basically have a scene from Alien 3 where the animal is ripped to shreds by the, the new super monster that comes out of it. In fact, if they'd had that scene, it would make more sense for Daryl Dane to take the stuff. At least then you'd have a motivation that makes some sense. Yeah, I, too, want to be able to rip a, a cat open from the inside out. Let me drink this formula. Something. <laughs> or if the rat just like goes crazy and he's like, oh, I need to shrink down to that size to fight this rat. <laughs> or the rat jumps out and knocks the formula into his face, and that's how he ingests it. Yeah. There's all kinds of no prizes that can be found here, but it, they're not going to give that up to us. And nobody's ever going to do that perfect doll man origin because it's a doll man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, well, then let's talk about Dalman in general or his his influence and his association with other characters in the DC universe. Okay, so 
going back because I'm not sure if anybody else is going to do this. And you're going to be tackling a fair few quality characters since Roy Thomas is involved in the production of this comic book. So I wanted to give you a little brief primer on quality comics. Um, it was put together by Everett M. Busy Arnold, and unlike most people involved with comics, he wasn't any kind of hustler. He was a ground. Uh, he was a Brown graduate. He was an economics major. He went into the print industry. And he was there for twelve years before he saw the potential in comic books, and he started working his way towards forming his own comic book publisher. He even worked with Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, which shows what a pioneer this guy was. Uh, he was involved in the publications of some books by Siegel and Schuster, not Superman, but other titles. Eventually, he did form what became to be known as Quality Comics. But what he had seen was that when publisher tried to do all original material in comic books, it just was received cold by the audience. So he used the contacts he'd made through paper publishing uh, with the newspaper syndicates to license their strips and put them into his own publications. So he carried several successful strips, but because these were big 64-page tomes, he needed material, uh, original material as ballast to fill out the page count. And that's how he ended up soliciting the Eisner and Iger studio. And of course, the Eisner in that is Will Eisner, who was, of course, the stereotypical Jewish street kid. He started out as a newsie who literally had to fight for his corner. Um, his father had been an artist who had fled Austria-Hungary before World War I and sort of bummed his way around the United States. But Will Eisner had inver- inherited some of his skills, and his high school friend Bob Kane suggested he use them in comic books. So he met with the editor, Jerry Iger, on WOW magazine, which didn't last long, but the contacts led them to form their partnership, and they saw the potential for packagers. And these were guys who basically saw the same thing as – Arnold had from the other direction that these 64 page books were going to burn through all the existing comic strip material before long and that somebody's going to have to produce original material whether it's ballast or not and they might as be the ones who do that. So they started working for Busy Arnold, and one of the people working with him was Lou Fine, yet another Jewish kid. This is a guy who'd gone to engineering and art schools, though, and was just a fantastic fine artist. Uh, Decker was one of his big influences, who is another one who artists of this period just revered. But he was crippled with polio, so I kind of think that maybe one of the reasons why he worked so well on the Dawman strip is he had easy access to reference. All he had to do was take things around the house, make them bigger, change the perspective, and he's got all the reference he needs. So Eisner is the one who laid out and uh, wrote the original story and created the character, created his look. Will uh, Lufine was the one who drew the story. And Eisner was actually doing this a lot. He was going to various publishers and especially though for quality, creating a lot of their characters, doing the first few strips and then moving on to do other things. And eventually he managed to work Arnold back into the newspaper strips, which was the goal of most comic book creators of that time. And uh, um, he got the news, the, the, the Spirit Sunday uh, strip started, which of course eventually became a daily and ended up taking up most of his time. And that's what Will Eisner is best known for, that and inventing the graphic novel. Meanwhile, Fine and Eisner, between the two of them, they either created or were closely associated with all the characters that we now know as DC's Freedom Fighters, including Dollman, Black Condor, Uncle Sam, The Ray, uh, plus – uh, Lou Fine and Jack Cole both ghosted on the spirit strip, especially when Will Eisner was in, uh, was in the armory for World War II. And Lou Fine isn't a really that well-known today, but this guy was a real artist's artist back in the 40s. He was a major influence and beloved by Jack Kirby, Joe Simon, uh, Gil Kane, Jim Steranko, Alex Toth, and of course Murphy Anderson. Um, and he couldn't really pull off regular strips though after a while especially at the quality that people wanted from him so eventually he moved on to doing covers did some of the most fantastic covers of the golden age and also ended up working in newspaper strips as well 
by the early 1940s, Busy Arnold had some of the top artists in the industry, obviously, but he was finding that he, they weren't liking the scripts that they were getting. And so he had to really make a point of going out and finding writers that would keep the interests of his artists so that he didn't lose them to other companies. So quality really seemed to live up to its name by virtue of just wanting to keep the talent that they had. And Busy Arnold valued what he called racy, well-written, and smooth-reading scripts even more than the art, and he manages to get the best of both worlds in his comics. I think quality comics are some of the finest of the golden age. Now, in the case of Dollman specifically, this guy was the first-ever quality superhero, as long as you discount the clock, who had been created prior to the creation of quality comics and was really more of a pulp character. Dollman was the first breakout original creation of quality comics and the first to be covered featured. And he predates every major DC hero except Superman and Batman, though he was still beaten out by the Dan Garrett Blue Beetle. Now, a lot of people, including Jim Steranko, tended to uh, mention Gulliver's Travels when, in relation to the creation of Dollman. They thought that the Lilliputians were a major influence on this creation. But I have my own theory that I haven't heard echoed anywhere else. Have you ever seen the Lionel Barrymore movie The, Doll, the Devil Doll? No, I have not. Okay. It came out in 1936. If you don't know, Lionel Barrymore is the grandfather of Drew, Drew Barrymore. Barrymore yeah. So the movie comes out in 36, and it's about a Parisian banker who is accused of murder and embezzling from his own bank, but he was in fact framed. So he's sentenced to Diablo Island to serve out his sentence, and there he meets a scientist who had been working on uh, developing a, a method of shrinking objects and people. His thoughts were that if you shrank people, then the resources of the world would go further because they would have to eat less and so forth. So the scientists and Lionel Barrymore's character escape Diablo Island, go back to Paris, and they begin exacting their revenge on the men who framed Barrymore's character. So what they do is they find two willing uh, accomplices, a male and a female, who shrink themselves down to doll size and then go about sneaking into these people's houses, killing them and or forcing confessions out of them. So my feeling is that the devil doll was not only an influence on the doll man and all other shrinking characters, but also on the creation of Madame Fatale, the cross-dressing vigilante. So anyway, so obviously Lou Fine did the strip for a, a year or two. Then he was succeeded by Reed Crandall from 1940 to 42. Reed Crandall is an exceptional artist, uh, probably best known for his work on the Black Hawk strip, which was also extremely popular and deserves a lot more recognition than it receives today. Um, he was succeeded by a fellow named Al Bryant, who is sort of treated like a journeyman by some of the people who've written about Dollman. But I've looked at those strips. They're really great-looking pieces. And between Reed Crandall and Al Bryant, they managed to continue enough of Lou Fine's style where it was very heavily rendered. And it reminded me a lot of early Brian Boland, um, especially the, with the, the, the techniques with all the different like multiple li- cross-hatching lines to fill in, sort of like you know the way money is drawn, basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. detail. And it worked very well because you're, you've kind of got a license to over-render on Dollman because you're having giant hands and giant stuff coming at him. And that's probably one of the most important things. You've got to show things from his perspective. He's got to be going up against giant somethings all the time to give you that sense of danger and immediacy. And so you want to have that kind of heavy rendering. Uh, Al Bryant, the thing they talk about him most when you try to look into his histories is that apparently he looked like Gregory Peck. He was a handsome guy, a quiet guy, and he did the book for a, a number of years. Uh, but toward the end of the 1940s, he suffered from a nervous breakdown. He attempted suicide. And he was hospitalized for eight years. Uh, he left comics and went on to become a technical illustrator for GE and the civil service. I don't know who did the strip from the late 40s on, but there's a huge quality drop at that point. Uh, it, it, it's a great-looking book for about the first six years between those three artists. And then it just becomes very bland, silver-agey, blocky characters, blocky 
figures, just not really that super to my reckoning. So if you want to look at any old old man stuff, I'd, I'd stick to from about up to 1944 or so. But around that time, he also got his own quarterly series um, that right. kind of spun out of that. Which outlived Feature Comics. Feature Comics ended in 49 after like 144 issues, I think. And he, Dollman was in every issue from 27 till about the last five. He got replaced by some stuntman character whose name I forget. And the book only ran for about five issues after that. But Dollman's solo series lasted all the way until 1953. So it's one of those deals where there's a tendency to think that after World War II, all the superheroes went away. But really, it was the DC and Marvel superheroes that disappeared. Uh, Quality managed to keep their guys going well into the pre-Silver Age period. Matter of fact, uh, Plastic Man in particular lasted right to the edge of the Silver Age and then – Ended. It was so sad. And then Doll Girl was created in 1951, I say. Right. Actually, though, uh, before that, the, in 1945, I think it was, there was a story where Marga uh, – Mar- what's her name again? I'm sorry. Martha. Martha, where Martha and Dane are both dreaming about how nice it would be for Dollman to have a partner. And through some mystic shenanigans, she actually does get shrunk for one adventure, but she forgets her own name and identity and goes by Midge. And she's running around in hot pants. And it's fantastic, let me tell you. Oh, the the amazing adventures of Dollman and Midge. I would read the hell out of that comic. Oh, yeah, trust me. That one story was definitely I, the hot pants were really the star of the show. I got to admit, though, I, I do not doubt that. Oh, the fellow's name it was Stuntman Stetson. Stuntman Stetson, and he took over feature five second issues before the the whole kibang went down the tubes. Yeah, okay. Because for a while, they, I I, also, I thought that they were basically just turning it into a humor magazine. So. No, it basically was – it was always a humor magazine. Mm-hmm. For much of the first several years, Dollman alternated covers with Rube Goldberg's uh, La La Palooza character. And then around 1944, Dollman just took over the, the covers entirely, but there were always humor strips. Feature was always a mixed bag of, of genres. And was the La Palooza character created by Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction? Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you covered most of my notes in terms of the publication <laughs> history and who the guy was. So. Sorry. <laughs> No, no, no. That's all right. I, li- I like when my guests come in and monologue because I get to think about other things. <laughs> well, I mean there's other stuff we could talk about. Um, Dollman didn't have – it was in this origin story. They show him as having the classic Dollman costume right out of the gate. And I think in both stories it's mentioned that they're, they're sewn up by Martha. But it, the original costume didn't gel for several stories. And initially it, he was just running around basically in trunks and a cape. Uh, and his second appearance, he's running around in a blue unitard with open sleeves and bracelets and a big D on his chest. It, it took a little longer for them to – kind of nail that down without spoiling too much of a future episode of this podcast let's talk a little bit about uh dalman's legacy on other characters in the dc universe specifically the silver age adam ray palmer okay i think it's an enormous and unquestionable influence because one of the defining aspects of the dalman strip was the action that this was he, he was a guy who just went in there and kicked the hell out of uh, hoodlums for story after story and it was violent action too because he was always tripping them and leaping at them in the face and if you in the silver age after war them there was a tendency to really water down the violence in superhero comics especially so if you look at batman's stories he tended to just be pretty strictly a detective there's a lot of him solving mysteries through non-violent means marvel comics is really what helped to bring violence and real action adventure back into comic books again but before that gil kane's work on the atom 
I, I don't know if it's because he was a tiny titan, why, you know, but they gave him a lot more opportunities to show actual action, actual punching, actual kicking, actual violence against the, the underworld. And that comes directly from Dollman. Gil Kane acknowledges Lou Fine as a major influence on his artwork. Uh, Dollman strip also has its tendency worth these full bodied punches where you really feel the impact of the action. Um, and then of course the constant, uh, imperilment of the hero, the covers, the bondage covers. If you look at Adam covers, they're just like Dollman covers. In fact, one of the problems with Dollman, uh, with the Adam, and I think one of the reasons why he didn't catch on bigger, given that Gil Kane was drawing him, was that they were watered down Dollman stories. They weren't really updated for the 50s and 60s. And uh, just, just as an example, for instance, in one of the earliest Adam stories, there's a, there's a cover where Dollman, uh, Adam is getting shot uh, by a little boy with a slingshot. And he's just getting shot to get to a, like a certain height to get something done. They did the exact same thing in a Dollman story. But in that story, the boy is shooting a Dollman with a pocket knife who then flies through a window and cuts down a man, his grandfather, I think, who's being hung by hoodlums and saves his life. So Dollman would just go that little extra bit further than the Atom would. And where the Atom should have been fighting space-age villains like everybody else was, he was still fighting the same nondescript hoodlums that Dollman did. So in a lot of ways, not only was the Atom directly influenced by Dollman, but uh, to its detriment because it didn't advance the Dollman formula past the 1940s. And they also both had red and blue costumes besides. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not suggesting that Dollman would have been a better name for Ray Palmer because I don't believe that for one second. I think the Atom was appropriate for the character and for that time. When did, when did DC acquire the quality heroes? I believe it was 1956. Was it, right I- after, was it right after the company folded? Yeah, see, my, here's, here's my understanding. What happened is Arnold was just tired of, of fighting the market forces. He was in stu- superheroes longer than anybody else was, really. And uh, he just realized, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. I've got, he made a good deal of money. He was quite rich when he retired to Formula, uh, to Florida. And he just sold out to DC in 56, apparently not for too terribly much, because DC let all those properties lay. They didn't let the creative know that they had those rights, and that's how Elongated Man got created is that uh, Julie Schwartz didn't know that he had the yeah, rights. Plastic to Man. Man. Yeah. Right, right, right. I heard that. Yeah. Just, they bought it. They went into a drawer somewhere, and nobody bothered with it for decades. Until Justice League of America issue 107, I think, is when the Freedom Fighters made their return. Actually, actually, I think that was the first time they were called the Freedom Fighters, but that's when DC brought back Doll Man, Uncle Sam, Phantom Lady, Human Bomb, The Ray, and Black Condor. And he's been, he's been a hero ever since. We, we always loved Doll Man. <laughs> well, see, that's the, one of the things with Doll Man, though, is I agree with you. I don't think that name works. I don't think anybody wants to follow a hero called Doll Man. There's always the problem of superheroes being a wish fulfillment concept, and nobody wishes to be six inches tall. Um, but in the case of Doll Man, they keep sticking him in these super teams, and this is something that the Adams struggled with as well. It's very hard to work a tiny little figure in amongst the team. It's very easy for that figure to get lost. And unless you're going to go out of your way to spotlight the little guy, he's just going to be this guy in the background. And I think that Dollman has helped by having a bright red cape behind him to give him a little extra pop in panels. But really, Dollman couldn't be expected to succeed because he's just he's, – he's one of the freedom fighters. He's one of these guys that turns up in the background, and it doesn't work today. I also think that Dollman is a much better villain name. I think you get the basic concept. 
real size, or you could go back and steal from the devil doll and have him have dolls at his disposal, like the the puppet master, and just use that name. But I think it's just a better villain name. I don't think that the, I think the time of the doll man as a hero is is long past. No, I agree. And just just I never thought of that. But when you just say the doll man as a villain, I get a really creepy vibe. Like I get like a very dark, twisted version of the Mad Hatter meets the Toy Man meets some child predator type of thing that could be very disturbing, but also very visually stunning if, if you know, treated creatively. If you want to creep somebody out, you can never fail with clowns or dolls. That's true. That's a good point. Doll Man versus Bride of Chucky. That'd be fun. <laughs> um, well, they did. They did try to bring him back recently in in the New Fifty Two era. In back in uh, 2012, uh, there was a four issue miniseries um, starring the Phantom Lady. But Dollman had a sort of co billing with that. It was the Phantom Lady and Dollman. And I, I read it basically on the strength of its creator credits because it was written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. And I never seek out their material. But I don't think I've ever read a bad comic written by them. Um, I, ju- I just think they, they know their craft. They know what they're doing. They know how to tell an entertaining story. Um, and that's, that really it, it reimagined the character. It, um, actually, his name was different. Instead of being Daryl Dane, his name was Dane. That was his first name. And his last name was Maxwell, which I'm assuming was a throwback to Will Eisner's pseudonym used back in the, in the 30s and 40s when the character was first created. Yeah. Um, and years was the credit listed on the strip. Even even when uh, what's space Al Bryant was sneaking his signature into the artwork, <laughs> they're crediting to the pseudonym. Yeah. Um, and anyway, it was he has this he has this horrible crush on Phantom Lady who won't give him the time of day, um, and she ends up enraging some some gangsters who come after him. And his creation is sort of like the movie Dark Man where basically these crooks come looking for her and they find him in his laboratory and basically torture him and throw him in this experimental chamber that has this shrinking thing. And they think he's just atomized. They think he just disappears because his clothes shrink, or his clothes just drop to the floor and they think he's dead. And they finally reveal that he's, he's been reduced to like a six-inch tall figure and he can't change back. Um, it, it was a decent story. My one real problem with it was that they updated Phantom Lady's costume um, they made it more progressive and something that a woman with self-respect would wear, um, which point of Phantom Lady entirely. Exactly, that, that was exactly my point. I was like, okay, I understand why you're doing this, but that's that's not the point of the Phantom Lady. She is a cheesecake character. Um, so that four-issue series is out. It's Phantom Lady and Doll Man. It's a decent read. It's a quick read. What was weird for me about that miniseries and one of those opportunities to take a shot at the New 52 not being new at all is that Grand Palmiotti had already created a new doll man for the Freedom Fighters miniseries that preceded the New 52. I don't remember the character's name, but he was designed to look more like an action figure, and he was apparently this brilliant tactician, this highly decorated soldier, but a real means-meet-the-ends type of character. He was he, In his first appearance, what he does is he pretends to be an action figure at a child's birthday party. He breaks loose of the, the child's present and then murders his father, who's some sort of a political you know, dictator or some such thing. So that was definitely a different take on Doll Man, and I like that one as well. And then those same exact guys do another version of Doll Man and Family Lady, which they'd already done in Freedom Fighters. Other places or other stories featuring Dollman or the Freedom Fighters that listeners might want to check out? Honestly, 
I think the Freedom Fighters is a great concept. I've very rarely read a good Freedom Fighters story. Um, so I, honestly, I, I can't point to anything. I, I've read some issues of Freedom Fighters. It didn't really grab me. I read that recent Convergence book with Plastic Man, which was a great Plastic Man solo story. Um, but no, I mean, I really can't think of a lot of stuff. You go back and read the free public domain Golden Age material that's available on the internet, and I don't really think you need to mess with anything else. The good thing is, they're, they're, especially for the first year or so, they're all four-page stories anyway, so they're nice, quick reads. It does get repetitive, but the art's good. I've seen Lou Fine's work basically just like images like in associations with other things i don't i don't know that i've ever read a comic of his but i've always been impressed when i've seen his work and i've heard about how great he was yeah back when i had a comic shop there was this one guy who you know, i I'm, I'm pretty good about pimping when it comes to the comic book knowledge this guy was so good I, he was he was like a i was like a pad one he was a jedi he was just so good with with the knowledge and he especially knew the golden through bronze age far better than i could and he once loaned Back in the 70s, they did these uh, – I think they were illegal. I think they were copyright infringing, but these big telephone books like the Cerebus graphic novels where they'd reprint classic Golden Age stories. Hmm. They did one that collected the entire Monster Society of Evil, which is probably the only way you can get that entire book, You know, the Shazam yeah. masterwork, because of issues with racial you know, racial issues. Right. And let me tell you, too, these Dollman stories, if you read enough of them, they are super racist, <laughs> super racist, yellow face, black face, nobody – you know, equal opportunity offender i tell you um but anyway they did a, a tome like that of nothing but lou fine's work and uh, almost everybody that you love from uh the silver age is at least partially influenced by lou fine he did gorgeous work and again he was like you know like a mike zach or brian boland who was so good that he just stopped doing interior stories and he only did covers and uh, they did a uh trading card set a number of years back they were they were all chromium and there was nothing but reprints of golden age covers and tons of those were lou fine images because they'd have to be if you're going to have the greatest golden age comic book covers all right frank thank you very much for being part of this episode where where oh where can our listeners find you online if they need to hear more about your thoughts on comics Uh, i'm not a huge fan of self-promotion that's more uh one of my partner's things um but if you like doll man then you should probably listen to my uh Power of the Atom podcast, since it picks up where Dollman leaves off in terms of shrunken heroes. In fact, uh, the, the Atom is often called the Mighty Might, and he directly ripped that off from Dollman. Um, and they're little short episodes. They're usually less than 10 minutes long. So if you just want that nice quick hit of little person action, uh, I, I got you covered. You can find that on iTunes and Shout Engine. All right. If that's the only one that you're going to mention this time, I'll leave it at that. But uh, probably in the show notes, I'll mention some of the other shows. You're too many to mention. I, I, I'm just a whore when it comes to podcasting. So, <laughs> Thanks very much for being part of the show. Um, hope to have you back again in the future. Last episode received Twitter favorites, retweets, and comments from Ange, David Golding Artist, Floto Span, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Lantern Cast, Siskoid, and Stella LeBlanc. David Gallagher, the writer of the two-part Convergence Green Lantern Corps series for DC, called it a great episode. Thank you. The Secret Origins Facebook page received likes from Alan Middleton, Andy Capellish, Benjamin Perlman, Kane Dorr, Chad Bokelman, Gottman Shioran, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Michael Lane, Peter Gatt, The Pulp to Pixel Podcast, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Steve J. Rogers, Terry Wood, and Van Z. Comments on the WordPress page came from Ange, Chris Franklin, 
Jeff Nettleton, Siskoid, Mark Sweeney, Michael Chiaroscuro, and Diablo Frank. As usual, I won't read every word of every comment, but I encourage everyone to get in on the discussion at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Ange said, I can remember reading the entry for The Phantom of the Fair in Who's Who, and like Ryan, I am a huge, huge fan of the Vertigo series. I thought there was a darkness and grittiness to that series that worked well as a pulp, and the beautiful, ugly art by Guy Davis suited it perfectly. The four-issue mystery arcs crackled, and I like how over time, Wagner started to insert more of the DCU into the series, bringing in Blackhawk, etc., and given how I loved the Crimson Avenger episode, I really wanted to read this. Looks like another issue to try to scrounge up at the next con. Well, hopefully you can find it at Boston Con, Ange. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure it's on mycomicshop.com for about a dollar, dollar thirty-five or something. Chris Franklin said, I had a leg up on this one as my first GL comic was Green Lantern, Green Arrow, issue 116, where Guy gets sucked into the limbo hell he was in. I got it in one of those weird Whitman three-packs, where the DC in the DC bullet was replaced by the smiling Whitman logo. And then Jeff Nettleton commented later on that his first experience with Guy Gardner was the same Green Lantern issue that Chris mentioned. Chris continued, It took a long time and the work of Jeff Johns, but I finally came to accept Guy Gardner. I loved him as a butt of jokes in JLI, but outside of that comic, groaned whenever he showed up. I think I was too young and idealistic to like such a jerk. As I grew older and more cynical, I understood his rough-hewn charm. Uh, Chris was equally critical about the Sandman story and how much it actually was a Sandman story, or not, in this case. Uh, Then he corrected a mistake that Siskoid and I made regarding the Jack Kirby redesign. Despite lots of histories to the contrary, it wasn't Simon and Kirby who changed Sandman into a standard superhero with a Robin ripoff sidekick. It was Aquaman creator Paul Norris. The change occurred in Adventure Comics number 69, and Norris lasted three issues before Simon and Kirby took over, where they stayed involved in the strip for years, barring wartime service, so no wonder everyone attributes the change to them. Well, thanks, Chris. I always liked Paul Norris for creating Aquaman, but now I hate him. Good job, buddy. Anyway, Jeff Nettleton said, One historical point you did leave out was how closely the Silver Age Green Lantern Corps paralleled E.E. Doc Smith's Lensman series. Within it, the intergalactic peacekeeping force is the Galactic Patrol, with their top agents, the Lensmen. Each Lensman has bonded to a lens, which amplifies his abilities and allowed him to speak to other races. The Lensmen would also influence the Jedi in Star Wars. Uh, I was vaguely aware of the Lensman series, which is to say I had heard of them, and I heard how they inspired the Green Lantern Corps and the Jedi Knights, but I don't know much more than that. If I can, I'll try to revisit the concept later on when we talk about the origin of the Guardians of the Universe and Hal Jordan. Jeff continued, I like Ernie Colon's work, but superheroes were not his best subject material. He did a mean Richie Rich, and I particularly enjoyed his grim ghost work at Atlas slash Seaboard. I thought Giffen and Demetrius were rounding out Guy a bit when they had him dating Ice. He was still a jerk, but it softened some of the edges, and you actually kind of rooted for him and Ice to become a real couple. I have to agree with previous comments that Matt Wagner did a much better job with the character's background and the character itself in Sandman Mystery Theater, though I enjoyed much of this story, especially Michael Bear's art. The 39 World's Fair touches are well done, and he captures the period fairly well. I'm a sucker for art deco and the modernist style of adventure. Bear did some nice work on Infinity Incorporated and the revival of the JSA as Inker. 
Then Jeff says, I just don't think Roy had enough space to do a lot of character development in these stories. Had he been doing this in an ongoing book rather than an anthology, I think he probably would have developed Wesley Dodd's motivations more and gave him a more rounded personality. I disagree with that point, Jeff. I don't think Roy Thomas lacked the necessary page space to give Sandman greater development and motivation. Roy chose to bring the Phantom into this story so that we don't meet Wesley Dodds until like page 7. He also chose to include the Crimson Avenger so Sandman has to share his debut adventure. He chose to spend four pages on cameos of other Golden Age characters just listening to the radio or watching television. Roy got plenty of characterization out of the Crimson Avenger origin, which he had to completely fabricate on his own. I think the stories that tend to be the most flimsy on character development are the origins that Roy copied from the original sources. This one doesn't fit either of those cases. I think just I, I just don't think Roy really cared about the character that much and just tried to pad Sandman's origin with a lot of extra fluff. And Jeff also said, the story is a bit weaker for lack of Diane Belmont. Wagner gave them a nice Nick and Nora Charles relationship that would have livened things up here. That I totally agree with. I love Diane in Mystery Theater, but she didn't enter Sandman's life for a number of issues in the Golden Age, so Roy wasn't going to include her in this first part. Siskoid commented on the Green Lantern section that he wasn't part of, saying, I remember being disappointed and mystified that the origin focuses on Guy rather than Hal, not just given the cover, but that Hal wouldn't get the turn first. And it feels a heck of a lot like we're picking up in the middle of things because it is a middle story in the Green Lantern saga. My favorite GL? John Stewart, at least in the Mosaic era. I don't like how they've turned him into a military-minded ex-marine in later years, even though I do rate the animated version, which is where the idea came from. Uh, I don't like the stoic soldier John Stewart either. I find him boring compared to the other Green Lanterns, but John Stewart in the 70s and 80s as a proud black man who took the mask off because he wasn't afraid of hiding his identity, that I really liked. I wish we had more of that. And I'm bummed that Jon Stewart didn't get an origin in the series. In fact, hardly any black characters got origins in the series. I think Black Lightning was the only solo hero to get an origin. Amanda Waller figured pretty prominently in the Suicide Squad origin, and Cyborg was in the Teen Titans story in uh, Annual Number 3. But I think that's it. Three black characters out of more than a hundred stories? What the hell, DC? I thought this book came out in the 80s, not the 50s. Mark Sweeney said, Ah, number seven, my first issue of Secret Origins, and therefore my sentimental favorite issue. I'm a big fan of both characters, but at this point I hadn't warmed up to Guy Gardner. It wasn't until Green Lantern, Volume 3, Issue 9, the first of the four-part Guy and His Gnort, which someone on the episode mentioned, began my conversion to lifelong fan. I loved the Giffen Demetrius JLI and their version of the character, but taken individually, a couple of my faves were exaggerated to the point of being caricatures, Guy being one of those. The Guy in his Nort story was Guy Gardner's first chance to really shine as a solo star, and maybe because he was paired with the insufferable Nort, and that Guy came off looking that much better. This comment led to a lot of subsequent comments about Joe Staten's work on Green Lantern and the Huntress, um, good stuff that you can read on the page. 
Mark then said, I'd been introduced to the Sandman character in his yellow-slash-purple getup in All-Star Squadron number 50, where he was gassed and blasted into space with the rest of the JSA. But the Sandman in the Secret Origin story with that garish DIY costume blew my mind. It was the story that made me a lifelong fan. I ate up Sandman Mystery Theater when it came out, despite the brutal hate crimes being depicted every month. The retelling of The Phantom of the Fair is one of my most favorite SMT arcs. Very different than the one in Secret Origin 7, though the rather brutal Crimson Avenger and pre-Spectre Jim Corrigan makes a cameo. Mark posted a link to a pinup of Sandman drawn by George Freeman from All-Star Squadron issue 43. Uh, from Roy Thomas's note, it sounds like Freeman was originally scheduled to be the artist on the Sandman origin. I'm not sure what changed. I know the scheduling and the order of the Secret Origin stories shifted a couple of times at the beginning, so maybe Freeman wasn't available when they needed this story done. He did eventually contribute to another Golden Age character origin, though, that of Green Lantern Alan Scott. And Diablo Frank said, JLI worked for me because its members were not iconic, so that when they were assigned extreme non-heroic comedy personalities, it was an enhancement rather than a gross misrepresentation of their often barely established personas. Guy was written as one of the most unpleasant of those characters going back to the reintroduction in Green Lantern, and therefore offered a greater flexibility for humor and storytelling possibilities. I completely agree with Frank, and it's my biggest problem with the Giffen Demetrius Justice League and Justice League International era. It's the opposite of what the Justice League is supposed to be, in my opinion. Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle, Dr. Fate, Captain Marvel, Booster Gold, Mr. Miracle, Captain Adam, all great characters and made better during the JLI years. But they're not the Justice League for me. In fact, I kind of wish that that book and that cast had been Batman and the Outsiders. I think there would have been more fun and success with that. Uh, Frank goes on, While not really an acknowledged favorite at the time, most of the best gags and firmest story motivation came from Guy, and I still view him as the de facto star of the given Demetrius and even the Jurgens runs. However, my enjoyment in the team setting didn't lead me to his appearances in the Jones GL run, or his solo projects, until I started picking up Warrior for its guest appearances during Emerald Fallout. I swiftly fell in love with the Smith Bird run, went back and bought most of the guy's post-crisis appearances, but ultimately burnt out on him by the sorry, necessary end of Warrior of the Warrior run. I still like Guy, but I think folks went overboard in smoothing out his rough edges so that he's now just another dully appropriate corpsman. Still, the extended countdown slash ignition story arc during Crisis is, in my opinion, an all-time highlight of the GL franchise, and Guy should probably be one of their great sympathetic antagonists rather than a mildly salty alternative to a half-dozen other earthly lanterns. On the topic of Sandman, Frank said, I completely see the appeal of the Sandman, especially to less-than-athletic fanboys who harbor a secret desire to cosplay as a hero who can wear glasses and not expose their bodies in lycra. I hope the judgmental sarcasm in that sentence is all in my head, because otherwise, ouch, kind of dickish, Frank. 
I usually have firm opinions on JSA members in the negative or positive, but with Wesley Dodds, I'm only marginally favorable. The premise is all right, and I can get past the worst elements of the costumes, but he's never appeared in a story that wowed me. I've read some mystery theater stuff and thought it was all right, but it didn't win me over like so many others. The origin sounds terrible, and I dislike Thomas shoehorning every eventual superhero in town into this One World's Fair celebration. While I generally like how DC dealt with integrating Earths 1 and 2 into a temporal segregation rather than a dimensional one, it's best not to draw attention to the absence of Superman and Batman by trying to offer relative duds like Dodds and Iron Monroe as loudly sucking ineffectual placeholders in their sphere of inspiration and influence. You can gray ghost your way around the shadow's DNA gift to Batman in a nice little side story, but trying to swap the Dark Knight with Sandman within the entire Golden Age DC canon is going leagues too far out of an ocean of disbelief. I agree that any in-use substitution for Superman and Batman's influence on the subsequent world of superheroes is useless, borderline insulting. Uh, That's one of several reasons why I prefer a multiverse. Finally... Last episode, I asked the crowd if the Phantom of the Fair ever appeared after the Sandman origin story as Roy Thomas hinted he would. From everything I've gathered, the Phantom did appear in a later issue of All-Star Squadron, but that issue told the origin of Johnny Quick, who was at the World's Fair when the Phantom attacked the King and Queen. So the appearance might have been part of a flashback and not revealed any more of the character. One of our listeners, Van Z, took the time to email Roy Thomas and ask about the Phantom's identity. In Thomas's response to Van, he said, If I had anyone in mind to turn out to be the Phantom of the Fair, I'm afraid I no longer remember. Okay, asked and answered. Unfortunately, Roy Thomas's letter went on and got a little questionable. He says, But that doesn't mean the Sandman mystery theater thing it was valid either. He was my character introduced to DC, so I don't accept the validity of what another writer did to him. I have a feeling I hadn't thought of a secret identity for him, but I'd probably have done so when I needed to. Okay. First of all, thank you very much, Van, for going out of your way and contacting Roy Thomas and getting that information. That's awesome. Uh, You're the MVP for this listener feedback section. Fortunately, there are no awards. Now... As to what Roy Thomas said in response, I know that writers feel a deep sense of connectivity and ownership of their creations. In fact, a lot of comic writers will admit that they don't read the follow-up material for a book once they leave and another creative team comes aboard because it's emotionally difficult to accept another writer or artist interpreting something that he or she spent so much time, maybe years, and energy on. And if that was what Roy Thomas's point was, I would have no problem with it, but that's clearly not his point. His point is that he feels the Phantom of the Fair, and by extension the other characters that he worked on, are his. He isn't bothered by other interpretations, he rejects their validity. That's what he says. The Phantom showing up in Sandman Mystery Theater, you could argue that that whole series is out of continuity, or it's part of a different universe, its own little world. Fine, whatever. But that's not the crux of Thomas's problem. He says the Phantom was his character introduced to DC. 
What is he basing that on? He didn't create the Phantom of the Fair. Does he think that Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Robot Man are his creations because he reintroduced them all in All-Star Squadron? And also, by his own admission, he never came up with an identity for the Phantom. He barely wrote the character at all, but just because he pulled some obscure name out of the public domain, that makes the character his more than any subsequent comic book writer or artist? I don't buy that. I hate that. Pull your head out of your ass, Roy. If you don't like what Matt Wagner and Steve Siegel did with the character, fine. But saying you don't find their interpretation valid, that's asinine. It's not yours to invalidate. And that was Ryan's controversial rant for this episode. Come back next time when I talk about how much the Judas contract sucked. Now, seriously, that is all for this episode. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Kyle Benning and Diablo Frank, for being on the show. I want to thank everybody for their support and for their comments, their likes, their retweets, everything. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfam or the username countdrunkula. Also, if you want to send private feedback for the show that you don't want to post on the Facebook or WordPress pages, you can send me an email at blackcanaryfan at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Stop.